0: I just like to ease in you know I'm not I'm not one for the okay let's go the recording started now I just like to sort of have a conversation with you and then when it really starts to pick up that's when it will just go from in terms of the editing and whatnot right but yeah how how long have you lived lived in a barge for
1: well I think it's now four years actually yeah so I used, like I mentioned, I used to live in London, mm. uh, but I was rarely there. I was by that point more or less moved to the States and constantly traveling all the time. So I was really rarely in London. And whenever I came back to London, it was between work trips, you know? So I said, like, why am I coming back to London for my holiday basically? And so I thought, oh, I'd rather be, you know, at that time I lived in Blackheath, so I spent a lot of time in Greenwich Park. And, uh, I thought, why well, I could just live in Greenwich Park. Wait a minute, no, I don't want to live in Greenwich Park. Well, what's the next best thing? I could live in the countryside, live in nature. You know? So I came out here, got a barge, and now I'm in the middle of
0: nature. That's fantastic. Yeah. And what, what were you doing before this? You know, you said that your business, you were away for work all the time, but what was it, what were you doing?
1: Yeah, well, The same thing I'm doing now, I mean, the the difference is really that with the pandemic, when the lockdowns began, I came back to the the UK. I figured, uh, you know, this boat I used to joke is my apocalypse bolt hole. (laughs) So then when the apocalypse came, you know, I came back here. But you know, my family are near here so I could help them, you know, help my parents and so on with with the pandemic, etc. It's useful to uh, be around to help. So that's why I came back. So it's, I'm doing still the same work, except I'm not doing the traveling part and the teaching part. You know, we, we teach all sorts of things. Uh, you know, I, I teach a great deal with Michaela Boehm. She's a, a world-famous uh, relationship counselor, and uh, she works in trauma, rehab, etc. She's a very interesting Austrian lady, actually, who lives in California. And we've been working together for five or six years now. Uh, very intensely. So we teach lots of programs together to do with, uh, often to do with relationships, often to do with embodiment, uh, often to do with, well, to some degree, you know, meditation and uh, trauma, uh, trauma release rather than trauma infliction, of course. Mm. And uh, that's just the sort of things we do. Mm-hmm. We work with individuals and etc., uh, but often, very, very often workshops. So now, of course, all that's moved online. Mm. Now it's uh, Zoom University of Zoom.
0: Yes. What do you... In, so, in terms of these relationships, the, the relationships, is that romantic relationships, or is that friendships, or is it every, every kind of relationship there is? Or Well,
1: actually, that's a very uh, good question, perhaps unintentionally. Yes, it's ostensibly about romantic relationships, that side of the work we do. Um, like I mentioned, Michaela's... Uh, very renowned couple's counselor and has many uh, you know has had doing that I think 30,000 client hours she's logged in one-on-one practice and uh, has many uh, clients, well-known clients uh, as, also as we, as we both do. And um, yeah that's to do with relationship, uh, romantic relationship, marriages and the sort of thing you know keeping the spark alive, etc, uh, improving communication, that sort of thing. But it's based really, or well, not quite based, but it, it also uh, has implications in, in the embodiment work that we do, that is getting in touch with the body, the trauma release work we do, and things like meditation, et cetera. Because they're all forms of relationship also. Intimacy with oneself. Uh, we often say that um, you know, to, it, it certainly helps in your intimate relationships with another person if you can feel yourself you know what's going on inside of you mm-hmm. if you know these sorts of things and certainly when it comes to any romantic venture uh, contact with your own body with your own sensations feelings thoughts etc uh, is a very useful aspect of that so I'd say it, it overlaps quite heavily
0: what would you say is the most important you mentioned about communication I've always thought communication is the most important thing in a relationship is that true is it the most important thing in a relationship with communication or is it something else?
1: Sorry, you broke up a bit there. Could you no, say that?
0: Is communication the most important thing in a relationship? I've always thought it was. Uh, but being as you know the expert you're working on it, what would you say is the most important thing?
1: Gosh. Well, I think communication's an important thing. Oh. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of, <laughs> you know, it's lot, there are lots of different important things in a relationship. Certainly communications is, is very vital. Um, but so is things like, so are things like compatibility. Um, and compatibility doesn't, compatibility doesn't always mean sameness. For instance, one could be compatible with someone from a different culture. Um, one could be compatible with someone who's got a somewhat different personality type. Uh, but also, people often find compatibility uh, with people who are similar to them, similar upbringing, similar worldview, etc. I mean, sometimes the contrast can be creative and interesting, and uh, sometimes the contrast can cause conflict. When one's basic assumptions about uh, life, the world, you know, these are these are cu- cultural, very often. Cultural, or by cultural, I don't just mean national countries and so on, but also the sort of family you, you're brought up in, the core beliefs of your family, etc. How you witness relationship and love taking place Uh, these all um, are tend to be quite core beliefs often we're unaware of them and that that leads to a lot of miscommunication in relationships because I'm doing something which I think means this and you're because you have a different view on these things due to your different upbringing etc you interpret that to mean something else I mean the classic example is, is when one travels abroad and certain gestures or um, certain ways of dealing with compliments etc are interpreted really rather differently so you are being you think you're being polite but this other person uh, feels you're being rude mm-hmm. and so what are you are you being polite or are you being rude there's a miscommunication there that comes because of the translation process that happens between people so a certain degree of compatibility, uh, it seems to be important in relationship. Uh, a lot of luck seems to be important in relationship. <laughs> circumstances that one faces. Some people go through such terrible circumstances in their lives that their relationships suffer and break. Um, and other people, you know, have, have more favorable circumstances. So I think there's many many factors. The more I, uh, you know, work with people and watch people and and observe it, the 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 less. Uh, you want. Yeah, the the more open I am, I think, to the diverse number of factors that seem to be involved in a relationship. If you have a good relationship, that's, (laughs) you're very lucky.
0: (laughs) I can, I know one thing for for certain, My camera just froze there for some reason. Um, One thing that I know about relationships is that having a a supportive partner or unsupportive partner affects so many different areas of your life uh so it's it's important to choose a, a mate who is going to be supportive in the areas that you need support in um two questions one well, one question and something that i'll talk about is that um you mentioned about your family unit and about your expectations of what relationship is based around your family unit you brought up in your culture etc always brought up in a, in a very strange family unit My nan and grandma didn't actually sleep together. They slept in different bedrooms. Now, for years, I thought that was the way it was. I was just, I thought that was it. That's the way it is. It wasn't until I was 13, 14, I started to go around other people's houses, you know, as you do for school, that I realized that actually other people sleep in the same bed. I was like, what? You mean it's not just in movies that they do that? You have to do do it in real life too. That doesn't make much sense. But sure, I'll go with it. And then I started to question other things as well, the things which uh, made sense to me but didn't make sense to anyone else. Um, like so what? For example, um, money played a very big role in their relationship. You know, my grandmother would often buy a lot of things from, from my nan and she would gain a lot of pleasure from spending that money. Therefore, a lot of the romantic gestures that I gave out were via money. And it was interesting that often I'm, I was I've been in my past I was with people who struggled with money, so it's a very interesting dynamic there um, that I've sort of worked on it and worked out to understand it myself. So that that's something that triggered interest. Mm. Something which I'm curious to know your opinion of is that have you ever heard of poly- polygamy, polyamorous relationships?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Do you have any kind of any any kind of not take have any kind of um opinion on do do you think they work or do they work for some not for others or what's your general view on uh, polyamorous relationships and that topic it's a big topic i know but just generally speaking what's your what's your input What's what's your take
1: yes it is a big topic and a very interesting one um I think it's one of the configurations that human beings uh, attempt when it comes to how to organize their relationship life, their sexual life, etc. And of course, there are different kinds of, um, you you call it polygamy, but sometimes people call it um, polyamory.
0: Yes. You
1: know, polygamy, I think, sometimes has a sense of being married to multiple people, and is uh, actually, I think, illegal in many yes. places. But polyamory is the idea of having more than one partner, uh, intimate partner, let's say. And very often, they, it's, an, it's said to be, uh, one's encouraged to be open about that. And there are many different configurations. One perhaps has a primary, as it's sometimes said, where you've got your main partner, and then that's the main, if you want, spine of the of the structure. And then from that, other uh, one one may have other partners in a casual basis, or on a semi-casual basis, or even on an ongoing basis. Uh, this is the sort of idea of polyamory, and there are actually still many many different configurations. In some polyamorous couples, only one of the members of the partnership will have other partners. Uh, in 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 uh, other couples, both will, you know, etc. Of course. Living and working in California, as I've done for several years, uh, this is really one of the places where uh, this is trialed quite a lot. Uh, California, you know, San Diego and uh, San Francisco, and these these are real places where I think this model has been. Uh, th- these sorts of models also appear, from what I understand, in certain animal species, also, uh, where one partner will have. You know, one one of one of the one of the animals will have multiple partners, or there'll be a sort of cohort of mating uh, animals, and so on. But anyway,
0: The hare of harem. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's, yeah the harem model, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. What's my take on it? Well, it's it's interesting. The uh, sometimes I think one uh, tries these configurations in order to mm, well, one thing that's the case whether you're in a monogamous situation or you're in a polyamorous situation or even if you're single you've decided to be single or even if you decide to be a celibate monk for instance (laughs) you are always going to be there and sometimes uh one takes one's well one takes oneself into whichever relationship configuration ones one finds oneself and that's the the key whether you're polyamorous or single or Uh, In a monogamous relationship, uh, serial monogamy, as sometimes people call it when you have different monogamous relationships, one always is essentially oneself going into those relationships. And and one tends to run up against similar uh, blocks, similar problems, similar frictions, uh, whether you dilute the intimacy among many partners or spread the intimacy around many partners, or it's contained within a uh, smaller set of people like two, two people, yes. one on one. Uh, one, one is always, one's, one's uh, like I said, one's upbringing, uh, one's beliefs, one's injuries that one sustains through life, one's hopes, one's dreams, all these things, these are all going to be part of um, each of those relationships. So I think sometimes people look to these uh, alternative configurations as being a refuge from the problems one faces in monogamy, and for some people they can be. And for others, I think it can be a bit of a kicking of the can down the road. Mm. Um, It's a little bit like converting to a different religion. Uh, Very often, when Alan Watts wrote this fabulous essay called Beat Zen Square Zen, where he mentions that in in the time that he was, a lot of people were enthusiastically converting to Zen Buddhism, which was very popular at that time. And he said that uh, if you don't... uh, digest or uh, integrate your relationship to your home religion. Uh, at that time, for most of the people he was thinking of, it would, would have been Christianity, some form of Christianity, or culturally culturally Christian. Uh, then you're likely to, just to play out that relationship, either in reaction to or, uh, uh, or just along the same lines in your new converted religion. So people would become beat Zen and square Zen. So some people were attracted to the beat nature of Zen, like the beat poets, this idea of no rules, you know, wild, totally uh, loving that because they felt perhaps restricted by their previous religious upbringing, and they saw in Zen something that was very, very different to that, that allowed them a, uh, a freedom. Uh, culturally or freedom religiously that they didn't have before. Other people love the square Zen, the traditional Zen, the outfits, the sitting in the perfect posture, the arduous training, uh, the you know close attention to the way you eat and the way you clean and all these sorts of things that are often emphasized in Zen training. And he called them square Zen. So the people are looking, in other words, they're finding in Zen what they brought in. <laughs> they're looking, they're you know they're getting out of it what they came in with in a sort of certain sort of a funny way, and. In a way, um, Alan Watts was suggesting, anyway, that rather than doing that, to uh, perhaps integrate one's relationship to one's own religion. doesn't mean don't convert. It just means that um, without that integration process, you're likely just to repeat the same structure with with just slightly different outfits, and a slightly different uh, theology or a slightly different philosophy. And that's true with relationships too, of course. You can go from person to person to person and uh, facing the same sorts of issues, you know, this is very amazing. Like with yourself, you had this uh, upbringing to do with money, and you had a very clear idea, perhaps unconscious initially, of what it meant to be romantic. And so, when you wanted to express romantic affection, you would do so through the medium of money, which is one way of doing it. You know, buy you buy flowers, or uh, buy someone a Lamborghini or a super Spion- <laughs> yacht. <laughs> So it's done it's, it's 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 a love language for sure it's a love language that you know of which there are five which we know uh often theorized so yeah that's that's the thing and so just in the same way you can move from relationship to relationship uh bringing with you the same sets of um problems and assumptions etc similarly you can go from relationship structure to relationship structure carrying with you this similar sets of
0: assumptions mm-hmm. oh that's just fascinating for me um it it's but polyamory is something i've often thought about not to engage in personally not 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 i have not really thought of that in a way of uh anything seriously but i've thought about it in terms of why would someone want to to engage in that and what could be the end result and and what is the um the outcome of being in that unit and mm. i often came to the conclusion and i could be massively out the park here because i've just had my own internal thoughts and, and sort of things that i've read and picked up is that it comes down to fulfillment that quite often um if you aren't fulfilled by a, a singular partner you go out and you'd search seek for other partners however in my this is my framework in my head you are relinquishing the belief that you can be totally fulfilled by one partner you know, the idea you can have a soulmate or a twin flame or something really romantic in that way. But I, I truly believe that you can be fulfilled almost 100% or, or pretty much close to or 100% by one person, by one sort of key individual. And I, I do, in my own personal take, I believe that uh, polyamory is giving up that belief or it's you don't feel like you can be with one person that you're trying to cover up you can down the road as you put it for the um square zane and square zen and, and beat zen. um what do you take on that would you say that that my sort of <laughs> my framework or conceptualization of it is similar to your own or things that you've heard or experienced or what would you say
1: well, i certainly understand your point of view i think um i'm i'm less certain about some of the things that you're Certain about, mm. but yeah, I think polyamory can certainly be those things. It can be a uh, dysfunctional attempt to, you know, avoid uh, certain things like you mentioned there. Uh, but so can regular relationship. I mean, people oh. get into into if you want. I say regular just because you know, classic sort of one on one
0: monogamy. I
1: think it is more more frequently done. Um, monogamy, um, or at least an attempt at monogamy, um, <laughs> is. Uh, Yeah, I think people can get into that for all sorts of reasons, too, you know, to seek, uh, you know, uh, unhealthy amounts of validation. Of course, one's validated in relationship, sure, but you can also be unhealthily needing it and et cetera, and uh, feelings of safety or feelings of significance or feelings of control and et cetera. All these things, one, I think, does receive in relationship to an extent, but can be unhealthy. So I, I think we've all seen people or known people or maybe even been people from time to time who've engaged in relationships. Um, for you know, perhaps less than ideal reasons. And people do that in polyamory too. Uh, one of the things that is interesting about polyamory, I'm not an advocate for polyamory, by the way, but seeing as you brought it up, uh, you know, the, uh, it's trying to solve a few problems. One of the problems is uh, the problem of, mm, the biological problem, really, uh, you could say, of the replication of one's genes. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> so that in a certain sense, uh, what, what, what what what's difficult about monogamy? Well, there's a few things that's difficult about monogamy. For one thing, it gets boring, it gets stale, it gets old. And there's suggestion that that might even be somewhat biological, the Coolidge effect and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that uh, when one has uh, mated with somebody a certain number of times in you know, one uh, there's, an, there's a sort of it lo- one loses its uh, compelling nature. Can be the case. It certainly changes. As we know, the honeymoon period changes. So I think this idea of uh, polyamory, one of, the, one of the reasons is to say, well, how can we get around or solve this problem of sexual boredom um, in a monogamous relationship? Uh, that's interesting. It's also, but of course, it, it produces other sorts of issues, which is the issue of jealousy. And when one is, one's partner is with other people, it's the natural, this is also somewhat biological, um, jealous response, perhaps, possessive response can often be the case. And it's seen in those circles, from what I understand, to be a virtue and part of the process, part of evolution as a person, to work through that jealousy, work through that possessiveness, which is seen to be a a bad thing. Um, And to, uh, yeah, so... That's some of the things that they say in 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 polyamory as for uh, You know, does it work or not? Well, it's hard to say, but I think it depends on each person with the divorce rates monogamy is also has questionable (laughs) Questionable success depending on how you how you uh, define success Mm. Nothing is nothing is working all the time and that's partly I think Perhaps because people are looking to be 100% fulfilled in their relationships whether it's with several people or one. Uh, that might be too much to ask of a relationship, to be 100% fulfilled by it. It might be too much to ask of a relationship or too much to ask of a person.
0: Mm. It
1: could be that um, fulfillment, well, it could be that happiness and fulfillment are not stable states, uh, but are punctuated by periods of dissatisfaction and struggle. It seems that life has that characteristic sometimes, and that uh, to expect to be fulfilled and happy in a relationship may be too much of a burden. Uh, To be kind, as you say, to be supportive, to be at times thrilled and excited and uh, enlivened in a relationship, nourished, to perhaps build something such as a family or an intimacy. Uh, you know, these things aren't always going to be easy, uh, but that seems to be, uh, you know, people in relationships, one of the things I think is useful for them to do is to figure out why they're in a relationship in the first place. What do you want? Is it a family? Are you looking for somebody to, as I often hear, grow together with, somebody to accompany you on your journey of development and unfolding? Are you looking for someone to explore and have new experiences with? Are you looking for somebody, um, a constant uh, relationship with whom to create and share memories, etc.? What are you looking for? Physical intimacy, perhaps, uh, emotional intimacy, someone to talk to, someone who's on your side, someone who's got your corner. You know? What is it that you're actually looking for in a relationship? One person perhaps wants to go on grand adventures with their life partner. The other one wants to settle in and start a family. They might, may like each other very much, but those are quite different goals. So to understand why one is in a relationship is very important. And then, you know, if you're starting a family and you expect to be happy and fulfilled all the time, <laughs> it might that might be too high an expectation of life in general and certainly of a relationship. Hmm.
0: I think it's impossible to be happy 100% of the time. I don't think anyone has ach- anyone ever has achieved hundred percent happiness hundred percent of the time. I don't think believe it's plausible in the in the kind of uh world that we live in unless we are hundred percent unattached from everything around us. My question would they would become kind of life is that?
1: Um,
0: well, that could be from me speaking from my unenlightened state. Um that I believe that um I think something that you mentioned there was quite interesting. There's, oh, and by the way, I'm not an advocate for poly- polygamy either. Um, I thought it was just, I had an expert in, in relationships here, and I thought I might as well just ask. It's something that's been on my mind quite, quite a lot these, these past month or two. Sure. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting topic. I, I, it, it doesn't come across that you're advocating it. We're just discussing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, is, it
1: is very interesting. And, uh, you know, there are people who are advocates of it, who lead the movement, and it very often is a social movement, part of a social movement with certain values. And I think some of the values are very admirable: mm-hmm. open communication, respectful, consent-based, uh, you know, interactions of a, of a of a romantic nature, and so on. I mean, I think there's lots of very good things about that uh, particular movement, uh, but you know, I mean, it's like anything. <laughs> it's like like, well, like I said, even monogamy if we were to say that's the normal or that's the usual mm. even monogamy you know there you, you look at enough people in relationship and uh, you know you, you, you see it doesn't always work for everyone all the time let's put it that way mildly.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah it's yeah I, I pretty much agree with you 100% there that uh nothing works 100% of the time and there's issues and uh, I think I think that you hit them on the head you know asking why why are you in a relationship with a person? And if those two reasons, you know, one person wants to see family or another person wants focus on the business, or one person just wants them to be around or be with, um, it can cause issues. I know that this is my personal experience, but I've often seen that temperament plays a big role in a relationship. That if one person wants, I don't know, to start a business, and the person wants to keep everything as it is, start a family, keep the family unit safe, but the person wants to leave, leave their job. Um, if that person that wants to leave their job has a more gentler temperament that just sort of go along that isn't very dominant, quite, quite submissive, they will just go along with what the other person wants because they're not able to accurately uh, convey the importance of the thing that they want and they'll just be in this state of uh, unhappiness or unfulfillment and I think it's quite difficult once you're in that position to get out of it again and how would you say is the best way to state your state what it is that's, that you want what your values are and what is the best way to state that to your significant other other than with your voice of course <laughs> is the best way to do it go about doing it
1: yeah I mean I think the voice of a good, good place to start. It, it, it's, uh, it, the first thing, of course, is to try to figure out what it is you want, and that's not always very easy. And sometimes you want has to kiss a few frogs.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you, you
1: know, you, you try on some different ideas and see if they fit, etc. Yeah, that's very hard. I mean, what what do people want? If you're lucky enough to be clear about what you want, then you're that's a great start. Um, and some of the people are afraid to express what they're really interested in, for fear of scaring other people away and so on. But I think you could also say that's somewhat of a good filtration system. If you know what you want, then and what you want scares people away in relationship, what you're looking to do with it, your why if you want, then probably it's uh, saved you some time. You know? But um, the best way to communicate it, I think would probably be clear about it yourself and then uh, to talk about it. I think that would be a good start. Mm-hmm.
0: Excellent. You mentioned there about uh, discovering your why. Um, I'm a very, very big passionate person about for discovering your purpose, your why, your reason to be. Um,
1: mm.
0: How, now I know the answer to this question already, how important would you say it is to discover your why?
1: In relationship, I'd say it's quite important because you. Um, it, it's quite important to discover your wine relationship, I would say, because of course, if the two of you have conflicting whys, then there's likely to be an incompatibility in the relationship and further down the road, uh, difficulties as to how to make certain life decisions and what to pursue. And if your whys are more aligned, then likely is the case you're heading in, roughly the same direction. So it's quite important in a relationship, and of course, one's why can change over time. It's not like you have to come up with some mission statement that is etched in stone. But on the other hand, uh, engaging in the investigation as to what it is you think you're doing in a relationship, why it is you, you know, we're, we're drawn to it as human beings. Uh, we're drawn into relationship. Most of us are, uh, sort of assume. Uh, that it's we should be, or should be moving towards it, or should be looking around, and so on. And so there's something driving that. And what what is that? Uh, to be engaged in that investigation, I think is very very useful when when trying to suss out: Are we compatible? Is this a good match? Is there is this worth exploring further?
0: And I know that you you specialize in, in in meditation different kinds of meditation of course we had a really good conversation about this the first time we really spoke that i was just blown away with the amount of kinds of meditation there were i think i said to you i think i think there's three i think there's zen mindfulness and and tm and then you were like no there's just like hundreds not thousands like what and we had a, a fantastic conversation about it and, and and a little bit of your history for for people that, that aren't aware uh give us give us um um what what is your history where did you start with your meditation journey and uh and what happened how have you got to where you are now mm-hmm.
1: yes well med- you know meditation is certainly one of my big passions and something that i uh, do an awful lot of work in and i enjoyed it a great deal um I, and as you correctly say, there are many different kinds of meditations. It's it's one of mankind's great hobbies, I think. <laughs> one of mankind's great occupations. In almost all cultures, and almost all times, there have been um, people interested in how to explore uh, what it means to be alive, how to explore the experience of being alive, how to explore the recesses of the mind and various states that are available and so on and so forth, uh, whether it's... Uh, alone on a mountain or, you know, in an ashram or uh, in daily life, you know, in a, in a romantic relationship or mm. et cetera, et cetera. There are so many different kinds that have been done uh, in all the different religions, I think too. So it's a really fascinating thing for myself. I first, I suppose, started meditating really uh, around five. In I used to attend a martial arts class, karate class. And there we would do a form of meditation, which is, I think, s- similar to certain kinds of zen, shikantazen, just sitting kind of meditation. We'd be training, 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 and you know, getting all tired. And then suddenly we'd stop and immediately stop and go into kneeling position, which in Japanese is called Seiza. So we'd kneel and completely stop, completely drop uh, any activity we were doing physically, and also to the degree to which we could mentally. Um, and sometimes we'd engage in certain breathing exercises, regulation of breathing, so on at that time. So that was an introduction to meditation. Also, I was an altar boy in the Catholic church, the local Catholic church. And I was the altar boy at the early morning mass where there was no song. So we didn't do any singing, there was no guitar, guitars and tambourines and that sort of thing. Just the raw ritual uh, of the mass itself. For those of you who don't know, the Catholic uh, mass is a sort of, it's the Sunday church service, and it's quite ritualized actually. It's not particularly free form. It follows a very set structure, and when you take the songs out, the hymns, uh, but then really all that's left is that structure, uh, certain readings, certain things. So, uh, as an altar boy, you perform a choreo- You're a choreographed assistant to the priest. You carry a candle here. You kneel over there with the bell. You tinkle the bell at the right time. You wipe the cup. You know, etc. etc. There's a sort of choreographed uh, ritual that you become part of. And that to me was also very profound, uh, actually. Uh, I wasn't much of a, uh, you know, didn't know much about the doctrine of Catholicism. We weren't really introduced to that a great deal. My mother wouldn't let us go to Sunday school because she said that anyone who wants to teach Sunday school probably shouldn't. It's the, uh, <laughs> the same argument some people have for politicians, you know, <laughs> you yeah. want to be a politician, you shouldn't be wrong. But uh, anyway, so I, I, I was really only exp- you know, mostly primarily exposed to that ritualist a- aspect and ritual in general can be a container. Uh, you in a certain sense, relax into the ritual, dissolve into the ritual actually. And I had many, uh, quite d- deep experiences doing that funnily enough. Uh, later on, I, uh, worked very closely for a while for two three years with a christian mystic who had come to the island that i grew up on uh, to finish some writing and i became his assistant and so we i was exposed then to a whole other set of contemplative and spiritual disciplines and spiritual explorations as suppose, to him later on i became very interested in uh, yoga of course and all different sorts of meditations uh, from the buddhist side uh, other indic Meditations, such as from the yoga system, uh, all around the place, really. So, uh, and in these last, you know, years, I've been a very enthusiastic, <laughs> dedicated, you could say, enthusiastic. I think better way of saying it, explorer of those realms. Mm-hmm. Many retreats, many long, uh, medium, medium retreats, uh, lots of lots of daily practice, and so on. So that's you could say my uh, history and. Um, All along the way, life gives you interesting experiences. You you get knocks, you get sicknesses, you have uh, highs and lows. And all these, I think, uh, massage the contemplative heart and uh, widen the view uh, and fertilize the inquiry. So I think meditation in that sense is inextricably linked with the circumstances of your life. And the sorts of things that you face and the sorts of people that you meet and the adversity you uh, face and so on yeah
0: fascinating and tell me about so that you know like i mentioned last time when we spoke that i didn't realize there was such so meditation and i didn't realize there was, there was a christian meditation or christian mysticism yeah. It was just fascinated me that you'd gone down that route uh, to learn it. So, if anyone hadn't hadn't figured it out uh, by now, you're on a beautiful barge, um, and a canal. So, tell us how have you how have you got there? You know, from I know that you mentioned that you were often in California, San Diego. That you know, what is what is your life like where you can travel from place to place and and how have you managed to, to reach that, that point?
1: You mean logistically, How did, how is it organized?
0: No, no, no. I mean, I mean, like, uh, your your story of, of how you managed to create a life where you can afford doing all these things and truly help others in, in, in the way that you do.
1: Uh-huh. Well. Story. Yeah. I mean, I think... How to say. Well, you know, gosh. Let me see how to answer that. I assume you'll edit out some of this thinking part, or perhaps not. Sorry. <laughs> you don't have you don't have to, it's okay you can do <laughs> um, well you just... the reason I travel a lot, ostensibly, is because I work in many different countries so if you're teaching it's a little bit like being a musician you can't just be in your house playing your concerts you know usually you have to go to different venues and different places in different countries if you're a successful musician certainly and people don't just come to you and that's the case uh, traveling around to different countries you know I spend you know pandemic notwithstanding maybe six, seven months in California, in Ojai, California, um, teaching there, working there, or in different places in the States, New York, places like that. Australia, maybe a you know, month and a half, couple months of the year working there, uh, quite a bit of time in Europe, particularly Amsterdam, and sometimes the Scandinavian countries. I have actually rarely work in the UK, uh, ex- extraordinarily rarely. I'm only ever really here in order to uh, in between work things funnily enough and that's just one of those things i've always been uh, somebody who's enjoyed exploring who's uh, I- enjoyed uh, the possibilities that exploring other places other countries offers uh, from a business point of view certainly and from a, a personal point of view i've always enjoyed that so i think it's somewhat my temperament one certainly could you know I don't need to travel as much as I do, but it's only for work. I don't really travel for any other reason than work. And so that's how I can afford to do it because it's all work related. And in fact, when I don't, when I'm not working, the thing I love to do the most is to stay in one place. <laughs> <laughs> Oft, often here on the boat or, you know, on the ranch in California, for instance, just stay in one place. It's very, very nice to do that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, how I got to that point, I, I just began setting up events and so on in different countries, and you know, it's just it's, just, it's, a, it's a little bit like you usually start off small, and then you get a little bit uh, bigger, and more people are interested, and in this sort of idea.
0: Oh, fantastic! So it's like you, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's sort of go, you know. We don't want to visit France. Let's let's do an event in France. <laughs> get some people to to pay. And then obviously on the, as you go there, it's all paid for you because you're giving that service and you're also in the place you want it to be. Or am I doing a more, am I doing a more businessy analysis of something that's far more simpler and, uh, and, and nicer than what I'm making it? Up?
1: Well, I would say that the business is not an excuse to travel. It's mm-hmm. more like if people are interested in what you're doing in different countries, there's two options. They can fly to you, they can come to you, or you can go to them. Uh, depending on the economics of it and depending on other various factors it makes more sense for everybody uh, to fly to them that's essentially it Uh, mm -hmm. i mean i enjoy the traveling very much of course and it's a perk of of the work that we do but the work that we do isn't a sort of an attempt to uh, you know, fund a kind of traveling lifestyle for instance mm-hmm. it's not it's not quite like that um. we have people that are interested in what we're doing all over the world so uh that's why we travel i suppose because yes. we just go to you know there's people usually some people interested wherever we are so we just uh, yeah. and they follow us through i mean if you know if you're talking about if you're talking about business the way it works of course is that people follow your uh, they see you online, they hear your podcasts perhaps, or they read your books, or they see your videos, this sort of thing, and they become interested in you. And then they start to follow you on social media or they join your mailing list. And over time, then you build up uh, a a list of people who are interested in what it is you're doing. And uh, as that list grows, um, you can do things like run live events, uh, or run live events in different places where those people are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's the basic structure of how it works. You get to a certain level of uh, interest that people have, and it can sustain things like uh, trips to different places to teach where there is interest. It really is very much like being a musician. If you have lots of fans of your songs and music and so on, then you you know, you know show up in some city and you've got a gig there, and people who are already following you... and uh, find out that you're going to be there because you tell them through the, the, your various channels and they will come because they like
0: the music. It's a little bit like that, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And would you say that that is a, in fact, let me ask you this, because this is something that's, you started on the or journey very, very young. I know a lot of people discover meditation when they're a little bit older, you know, tends to be in their late teens, early twenties, or that's my experience of it anyway. That, that's when I discovered it. That. That's when many of my friends discovered it. What would you say would be the best course of action if someone wanted to uh, do like what you do, teach meditation, you know, guide people through? What would you say is, is the best things for them to do if they want to take it up full time and start to you know, be paid for it um, on this journey?
1: What would my advice be to somebody who wanted to do meditation full-time? Well, th- that's an interesting question because, once again, we come back to what we were saying about relationships. Mm. It, it is quite important to understand why does you want to do that? I think in our culture very often, some of us, so, some, some of our culture, bits of it, uh, there, there's an idea that to be a professional something is uh, a reflection of competency or it's um, a reflection of commitment. To be a full-time meditation person is somehow the natural progression for somebody who's really very dedicated to it and very passionate about it. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. If you want to do lots and lots of meditating, you don't need to become a meditation teacher or a meditation person. You can, professionally speaking, you can, perhaps more fruitfully, uh, can engage in your practices you do personally, and then you engage in whatever else you're doing in your life. There are many, I think, very useful, interesting jobs to do. Uh, that are in line with somebody who's who's very keen to spend a lot of their time practicing meditation
0: um,
1: that don't right. involve teaching it.
0: But go on. So maybe then my, my choice of question was wrong. Maybe then I'll phrase it in this way. Let's say that you've got an awful lot from meditation yourself and it's helped you tremendously and that now you want to help others on that path too and that the reason why you want to become a uh, a meditation person, meditation teacher, is to help others on the path that you, that you are on and that you've been helped by it. Uh, what would your advice be to them who are in it for the for the right reasons to help, to give value?
1: Somebody who's in it for those sorts of reasons, that they are keen to share with others what the benefits they feel they've accrued from being involved in meditation. And so what advice would I give them? well yeah of course let's think okay from a from a business point of view um let me think how how best to to go at that
0: it's okay i I only ask you because you're you're there you know you you're living the uh the, the, the the dream as it were you know
1: yeah well i mean if you want to if you're a very keen guitar player and you wish to teach people guitar um, because you like playing guitar a lot and you'd really like to share that with other people and also you you know that maybe teaching guitar you're going to get to play a lot of guitar and you get to hang around always thinking about it and working with guitar and music and so on so, you know, so there's many good reasons to do it i'm not saying that yeah anyway then what do you do well you uh start advertising your services (laughs) locally you know and you you know do things that way i mean if you want to if you look if you want to share some of your meditation uh, practice and start teaching in some way i mean there's various different trainings you can take uh with uh, but probably someone who's very serious meditator will already be plugged into some sort of community or some sort of teacher or something like that and there's usually routes there where one can do trainings a little bit like becoming a yoga teacher Mm. Actually, maybe yoga teacher is a better example. It's a little bit like becoming a yoga teacher for most people, and then you, uh, you know, you can do uh, free classes in the park, or you can do low, you know, low cost classes in the park, or you know, whatever. Uh, you can, you just start to offer it. I suppose it it really rather depends on the situation the person is in. I would say to anyway, my basic advice though would be to know why you're doing it. Um, and perhaps uh, follow the usual methods of starting a business. But but could you narrow it down a little further? I'm not quite sure. What I found for myself, let's put it this way, what I found for myself is I'm I'm just very enthusiastic and I'm very interested and I like talking about the things that I'm interested in. Meditation is one of those things. And it seems that other people are also interested in meditation and are also interested in uh, practicing so i simply include them in my interest share uh, uh, encouragement uh, share techniques uh, etc that seems to be the basic the basic uh, way it's the way it's gone but
0: i've yeah there we go yeah got it so it's it's all about giving back to others sharing in your experiences sharing in your knowledge to help them on their journey and then they obviously reciprocate, follow you, and and you know etc. It's about giving. Yeah, right?
1: I mean that's not really how I see it, but I think that would probably work for a lot of people. I mean I don't think of meditation like teaching like that. Now, for me, I I encourage people, opening doors, introducing techniques, introducing. Uh, you know, I have a podcast, for instance, Guru Viking Podcast, where I interview many different guests there about, often about meditation. And so people can listen to the podcast and discover teachers and discover books and discover systems of practice that they might be interested in. Uh, It's not really my knowledge, which is the operant thing. Um, I'm trying to facilitate inquiry, you could say, Mm. trying to encourage investigation and curiosity in people who come across, say the podcast, or perhaps come across some of the classes that I do in Uh, Each week, the Guru Meditation Club, during the pandemic, we have free uh, week classes that people come to, and we do a technique, and we discuss it, and so on. I'm not really doing it from a point of view of being the meditation master, uh, handing out the information uh, from my position of uh, realization, necessarily. Mm -hmm. I actually don't want to limit the exploration of people who are working with me, just to my own knowledge. Now, of course, one it does help to have some knowledge it does help to ha- help to have a lot of practice and to, to to know a few things but my orientation i think philosophically is to encourage the exploration of the student um, uh, to on their own path on their own journey as opposed to trying to help them replicate what i'm doing or mm-hmm. what i may or may not feel i've uh, got out of practicing mm-hmm. it's the thing about meditation that's very interesting is that you don't really, it's not like bodybuilding where you're going to look at someone and say, well, he has a big bicep. It's not like that, you know, you, if you want to teach meditation, all you got to do really, you don't, even need, you, you don't even need to have ever meditated, actually. All you need to be able to do is just sit there and say something, you know, describe a technique. You know, I mean, you don't even need to have any of that stuff. It's so intangible and difficult, especially for a student or a beginner or somebody coming into it to, to differentiate they haven't got the uh, uh, ability generally speaking to differentiate between someone who's very experienced and someone who's not because they themselves have no experience uh, the dunning-kruger effect uh, the beginner is unable to really assess um competency in the same way if we think about a guitar playing example uh, if one if we uh, i've uh, played guitar in my life and so if i'm sitting next to somebody who's never played guitar listening to a virtuoso We'd we'll both be impressed by them and they may enjoy it. But the likelihood is that I, as an experienced guitar player, will be able to appreciate much more, in a much more detailed way or in a very different way, mm. virtuosos playing. Because I have enough understanding of the guitar to understand how marvelous their skill set is and how wonderful their performance is. And perhaps my ears has been trained also th- through, mm. through my work as a musician am I practicing as a musician? Whereas the beginner still under, enjoys it, still is impressed and delighted by it, but in a slightly different way. Uh, so, you know, that's why very often somebody hammering out chords at a party uh, is sometimes as impressive to somebody without musical training as, as a virtuoso guitar player, because they, they just don't have the distinctions, you know, they, mm-hmm. they enjoy it both. And there's actually sort of, I suppose, blissful ignorance in that sense. Uh, It's actually something that guitar players often lament is that, oh, this person here at the parties, everyone thinks they're great, but all they're doing is smashing out the chords of Hey Jude or something like that, you know? And so guitar players could become a bit snobby about that. But but anyway, that's certainly the case. I think in, in all areas, whether it's coaching, like what you do or meditation, teaching, or anything like that, it's very difficult for the uh, interested uh, beginner to Mm -hmm. be able to assess exactly what uh, who's good and who isn't good and so on. Um, so yeah. Interesting. It's a it's it's an interesting one. It's an intangible it's an intangible one, you know. It's very funny.
0: It's very interesting. Um here's what we'll do if it's okay with you. We'll yeah. pa- I'll pause the recording. We'll go on a little break. Resume. Yeah. But yes, um that'd be fantastic. Can
1: yeah we- I mean for to to give you something a bit more concrete. There are different routes that one might go about uh, to become, I suppose, a full-time meditation teacher, for example. Uh, you know, the, 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 often it's within a religious or context, or, or one might ad- obtain some sort of teaching certification in a secular or religious context, and then teach under the auspices of that organization. That's quite commonly done. And that's very similar actually to how yoga is um, so one becomes a yoga teacher. Tanya Yoga teacher training, and so on and so forth. Uh, Some trainings require or assume certain practice level. Others don't. Like I mentioned before, you could actually, in theory, teach meditation without ever having meditated. I mean, I wouldn't advise it. It's not a very good idea. Um, But you probably could, and probably a lot of people wouldn't be able to tell the difference. (laughs) So it's just, you know, that's just one of those things. So, um, uh, of course, in terms of revenue streams, uh, it's much like any other... Uh, skill uh, share skill teaching profession uh, or occupation uh, one might have one-on-one clients uh, who, who one uh, sees weekly monthly something like that uh, that's typically how it's it's done with lots of teachers who are not teaching let's say who are teaching in a more if you want secular or non-religious style because the religious in the religious context very often one doesn't charge actually uh, it's uh, and I myself don't very extremely rarely charge for meditation instruction, um, mainly because I don't have to, uh, but also because, uh, you know, I, I've been the recipient of uh, teaching from generous teachers who, uh, you know, who didn't charge me. And, uh, and so I just myself don't tend to charge. But for the, if you were to, then the usual way it's done is you have private clients, one-on-one clients, just like being a coach or a yoga teacher. And then maybe you teach groups. So you have perhaps a class, maybe online or in a local yoga studio or, or um, hall or something like that. Um, that's often how it's done. Some people, of course, teach online, like I mentioned. Uh, some people have online courses, etc., like I mentioned. But now we're getting quite quite a bit past the how do I begin stage, um, you know, to the some, somewhat more developed, uh, I suppose, uh, as a teacher. As, and as, in, in terms of a business model mm. uh, of course some people write books become very famous meditation teachers who write books and there's some revenue generated by that although from what I understand uh, books are not quite the profit uh, profit margin uh, profit uh, stream they used to be mm-hmm. but are certainly are very good for getting you well-known um, so these are the typical ways it's done often in a religious context like I mentioned uh, there'll be a donation basis, so you're encouraged to or allowed to, or to donate to the teacher. Um, they call it dana, is the um, Sanskrit word for it, dana, mm. meaning, uh, you know, this sort of generosity giving model uh, where you don't charge, uh, etc. This is the way it's typically done. Uh, for somebody who's interested in getting into meditation like i said i mean it's, it's it's a lot like the advice you give to people who are want to become guitar player or something like that you know you say well if you really want to do it you know you can but it's not generally seen to be a particularly profitable business and uh, uh yeah for, for all sorts of reasons if you're very passionate about it and you want and you want to do it then that's it. and so how would you begin well you would need to of course let people know that you're doing it somehow mm-hmm. or another some people do that by creating content online youtube videos for instance or perhaps something like this um, other people will place guided meditations on apps such as insight timer which do accept contributions from people you can just send it in a guided meditation and they'll host it for you and you may get interest that way other people do you know free sample sessions at their local hall and so on but now we're getting into the same territory if you want to be a guitar teacher you want to be a yoga teacher if you want to be a life coach you know Mm. it's kind of along those lines in terms of a business model at least in the states it's very often done that way
0: Mm -hmm. yeah you kind of need to a tell people that you're doing it and b give them your skill give them your time your energy Um, I know from my coaching world um, if you really want well-paying clients there's a certain way you go about it. it's a certain strategy that you go about it which is always give massive give massive value you know don't go for half an hour 30 minute sessions go for two hours long time and and truly truly commit yourself to that person and be with them in that moment um I know that for different service-based industries it is different so what yeah, would, I mean, yeah.
1: I, that's I, I suppose that's certainly one strategy of coaching. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, how what would you say? Let, let's say, for example, um, I am not an avid meditator. Um, mm-hmm. I've done it in the past, but I've never been able to get myself into a routine of doing it. And I know I need to. I know that it's beneficial. I know it's helpful. I know it would give me a lot of energy. But for some reasons, I'm blocked to why I don't do it. So, what would you say to people? who want to get into it, who want to start to take on this habit of doing it every single day, and they can see the benefits. For some reason, they keep finding excuses not to. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the same as any habit, isn't it? Any new thing you'd like to do. Uh, There's a a few levels we could go at it, but generally what I say is to do a very, very small amount, (laughs) one minute or something like that. Um, People often, I think, are too ambitious at the beginning initially uh, if one wants to acquire any kind of daily habit it's generally advisable uh, to focus on the acquisition of the of the habit first as opposed to how effective it is so let's say you think one well, more minute of meditation or five minutes is not very much i'd like to meditate for this amount of time some long amount of time well that's an excellent ambition but the reality is that uh, initially uh, there's the as i sometimes call it there's two fronts and there's the practice of practice and there's the practice itself. The practice itself is meditation. And, you know, if you meditate regularly and you certain things will happen, or a certain progression perhaps, or an uncovering or something like this, there's different ideas about what that means. But there'll be some sort of progression there, And typically. And there's also the practice of practice, which is the just sitting down on the cushion to do it each day. And that in itself, um, it's a different front. And so uh, sitting, let's say, for one minute a day or doing some sort of, Trivial amount you might say uh, it, it could be trivial actually, from a meditation point of view, you know what say no, it's not very doing very much right i 'm um, worried I might not get very far or you know progress very quickly or something like that well <laughs> whether that 's the right way to look at it or not, be that as it may. Um, what you are able to do is is have victory on the practice of practice front, the mere fact that you 're sitting down each day, so it 's much like uh, uh yeah so I think that's very important to have such a golden minimum that's so low that it's very easy to obtain now you might decide to do more but uh, the point is that you've got a golden minimum that's easy to do even if you don't feel like doing it uh, and then the, the key with the golden minimum of course say it's 1 minute or something like that is to do it regularly and if you do it regularly then uh, there's a continuity and there's a sort of thread of continuity and very often with habits of all sorts, whether it's going to the gym or doing meditation, uh, there's a compounding effect. Uh, going to the gym once a month for three hours, you know, <laughs> compared to uh, regularly training in maybe a mo- more modest way, uh, it's generally said to be the case that regular uh, practice uh, um, has a compounding effect.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, meaning that if you practice, you know, one minute a day for a month, that's 30, 30 minutes of practice. But because it's every day, that's it's, you get this sort of benefit of 35 minutes or maybe 40 minutes. There's a compounding effect, like water that crashes on the rocks. The water is soft, the rocks are hard. But over time and repeated contact, the water can actually shape the rocks, in fact, despite the hard and soft difference there. So th- these are some very important things. Uh, it's also said to be quite useful to understand why it is you want to meditate. You know, and there's all, and you know, you're a coach, so you know all that sort of thing. You sit down and write, well. Great example is you write 10 things you think you're going to benefit from if you meditate, 10 yeah. things that uh, if you don't meditate, you won't get. And then 10 reasons why you can do it, you know, because, etc. I Maybe mean, these are all coaching strategies, that, uh, motivational strategies, that whether it's trying to quit smoking or, you know, go to the gym or, you know, they're habit formation strategies, basic sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So I think low, my, my favorite way of advice is to you, lower your standards to such a degree that you can actually do it. Because the alternative to that is to have standards that are at such a level you can't actually do them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the problem with standards that are unmeetable is that you won't meet them. And if you can't, if you're aiming to meditate in half an hour a day, and as a consequence meditate zero minutes because you can't do it, mm-hmm. well, you're better off doing one minute that you actually do. So the practice that counts, as Michaela often says, is a practice that you do.
0: Interesting.
1: And then over time, you develop a certain sort of. A, You know, you get in the habit of it, you develop a certain sort of a beachfront, if you want, and then naturally uh, the practice can expand from there. But there's also the forces of expansion and contraction. You have to let your practice breathe. In the same way that you don't just breathe in, you also exhale and breathe out. Similarly, practice may expand. So let's say you're practicing and you're adding more time, and so now you're doing half an hour or something like this, but then your interest wanes or life circumstances. occur difficulties and so on and you can no longer do that half an hour you might think to yourself well you know i can't go back to my one minute or five minutes that i did for my golden minimum Mm -hmm. because i'll be going backwards but actually it's not the case Uh, meditation is cumulative and so it's useful to have a flexibility so that yes your as your enthusiasm grows and your circumstances are conducive you can your practice may grow and then as circumstances are more difficult your enthusiasm wanes let's say or energy wanes you have to put your attention elsewhere then the practice can shrink Uh, if it can't do that then generally it breaks because Mm -hmm. you can't do your half an hour so now you don't do anything and now it's been you know six months since you've done anything and that's just this sort of thing
0: Mm -hmm. i have curiosity um what meditation do you partake in the most what kind, you know, the Zen, well, I'm not even going to go into how many there are, you know, we'd be here all day. Oh, I didn't even know them. Uh, But what what meditation would you say you partake in the most, which you'll go to? Yeah, well,
1: I would say one of my favorite ones is um, meditating on the sensations of the body. So the interesting thing about meditation is, like you did mention, there are many different kinds, you know. There are meditations that are more passive in nature and more active in nature. Passive, such as observing. So perhaps you might sit there and observe the sensations of the body, which just simply means to feel the sensations that reveal the presence of the body. But you could also do that with looking out, listening, watching your thoughts, uh, feeling your emotions, right? These are sort of slightly in a more passive uh, um, way of doing it because you're not acting on the sensations, you're just experiencing them. And then there are more active forms as well, uh, where one attempts to generate positive states. For instance, you might you know think happy thoughts, or you might uh, visualize uh, loved ones and repeat uh, phrases of well-wishing, etc. This is called loving-kindness practice, which is uh, done even you know in Christian traditions, Buddhist traditions. There's all these sorts of ideas. It's a little bit like praying in a way, kind of, but not quite. But you generate happy or positive, friendly, compassionate states. It's more active. Um, there are, there, are, there are styles of meditation where you attempt to abs- enter into deep absorption states. Uh, you're aiming for that. So, that sense is a bit more active. Well, Although, the way to get there may be a more passive route, like watching the breath. There's concentration practices like watching the breath, where you concentrate on the breath, and if you ever drift off, you come back. And then over time, your concentration gets better and better, and you're able to stay for longer and longer. And that's said to have all kinds of benefits. Uh, but there, there, there are also uh, meditation techniques where you visualize things. Actually, in certain traditional systems, you might even visualize an iconic figure like a saint or some sort of idealized being um, and engage in various techniques regarding that. So, there are really very many different kinds. Many people are familiar with mindfulness, of course, and mindfulness tends to be in that more passive camp. Uh, You notice the sensations as they arise, uh, perhaps using a body scan to guide your attention, or perhaps just selecting different areas of attention, maybe for some period of time, using looking out and seeing what you can see. And then another period of time, maybe listening, or another period of time feeling the body. So one of my favorite kinds, personally, is the body sensation. I often come back to that. So I would simply sit down or lay down or whatever my position would be, and uh, feel the sensations that reveal the presence of the body. And there's two things going on there. On the one hand, there's the raw sensory data flowing in that reveals the presence of the body. And on the other hand, the mind labels and categorizes and says, you know, that's my bottom on the cushion, that's my hands in my lap, Uh, that's the clothing on my skin, sort of parsing apart uh, the inflow of sensory data. And you don't have to stop your mind from doing that. But it's an interesting meditation to say, well, okay, even even if, and even as the mind labels and categorizes, is it possible to also tune into the raw sensory data before it becomes uh, bottom on cushion or hands in lap or clothing on skin. So it's this sort of idea uh, I, I'm very fond of. But you know, part, part of my practice is I, I do enjoy many different techniques, uh, but that's certainly a staple that I come back to quite regularly. I also enjoy meditations where one uh, enters into restful or tranquil states. There are many ways to do that. One way is to actually look around the body and see if there's any restful flavor is already there. Even if you have, say, a sore knee, uh, it could be the case that your elbow is quite fine. You know, we tend to think about the sore knee, but often if you look around the body, you find, oh, actually, yeah, my knee's sore, but actually my elbow is quite peaceful. Or one, I taught one, this technique to somebody on one occasion. She had chronic pain all over her body. She had a, a condition that caused that. She discovered that her thumbs didn't hurt. The only place in her body that didn't hurt actually were her thumbs. So she said that she had very peaceful thumbs. So that's one way to enter into tranquil states is you find any tranquil or neutral or restful state in the body that is existing already, and you focus on that, and then what you focus on, uh, you know uh, tends to uh, become clearer and clearer and more vivid and contactable, etc. That's one way. Another way of doing this is to systematically relax the body, uh, perhaps going from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Uh, relaxing different muscles, the eyes, the jaw, tongue, throat, you know, as you relax the muscles deliberately, you can ride that restful flavor um, and tune into that. Uh, Some people like to use the exhale. There's something relaxing about the exhale because in order to exhale, the respiratory muscles do need to relax, mechanically speaking. And so when you relax the respiratory muscles on the exhalation, uh, or when the respiratory muscles relax on the exhalation, you can tune into that relaxing. So each phase of the breath is an inhale and an exhale. And as you exhale and relax, there's a flavor of restfulness. So this is a way of cultivating uh, restful, tranquil states. I'm also very fond of that uh, style of meditation. But I enjoy a lot of other things. I love m- meditating in movement. I have this whole way of method of meditating in movement called Movement Kind Method. I have d- DVDs, downloads, and so on on my site Guru Viking about that and that's different ways of moving the body uh, and exploring the sensations that are generated and exploring different themes that are suggested by those ways of moving Uh, i like to do that a lot Um, yeah but the wonderful thing about meditation for me one of the one of of the things is its diversity Mm. there's so many different types so people think well then sometimes people think, well, my meditation is better than your meditation. So yeah, maybe, maybe not. But I like the diversity, and they don't always agree. You know, some of them say, you know, you need to exert a lot of effort to achieve X, Y, Z. Other, others say, no, effort's the problem. You need to drop all effort and you know, uh, relax into uh, this thing. And different approaches, different ways of doing things, different ways to to use a very un-meditation-y metaphor, different ways to skin a cat.
0: You know? mm.
1: <laughs> so I love the variety. But uh, those are some of the ones that I do quite often.
0: Interesting. What is, so one of the meditations that I am personally intrigued in is uh, TM meditation, transcend, yeah. transcendental. Um, for the people which which don't know, you know, what do you know about transcendental meditation? Could you, could you give us a quick overview and then we can go into it for those that don't know? Certainly,
1: yeah. It's a type of meditation um, whereby one is, it's a mantra meditation essentially. Uh, so typically the way it's done is you uh, learn a mantra and a mantra is a repetitive phrase or a syllable. There are all different sorts of mantras uh, from all different kind, parts of the world. I mean, actually to translate the word mantra is not uh, so easy uh, because it can mean many different things in different contexts, but you could say even a, a prayer like um, uh, the paternoster or um, the hail mary these sorts of repetitive prayers that are often used with the rosary that's mm-hmm. sort of a mantra and it's a repetitive phrase uh, mantras tend to be a bit shorter though um, buddhists like mantras like om mani padme hum you know hailed as the jewel of the lotus to do with wisdom and compassion mm-hmm. um, every, but people often know about this om you know saying om uh, that's very one syllable mantra and one repeats it uh, so this is mantra practice and mantra practice is used in many different ways. In TM, uh, from what I understand, you're you're given a mantra. uh, It's said to be secret, you know, whispering mantra from one ear to the next, but I'm sure you can Google it as well. (laughs) And then you sit for 20 minutes, usually a couple times a day, and you just repeat that mantra, repeat that mantra. And it's a sort of a concentration practice. It's a sort of absorption practice. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Some mantric systems suggest or claim that the mantra itself has some sort of esoteric or energetic power. That by saying the mantra, some people say. By the way, the tongue hits the roof of the mouth uh, in the sacred language. It activates channels in the body. So, okay, some people say that. Um, some, you know, some people say that the re- the, the, reverba- the the vibration of the syllables contacts you with all of the masters of the past who've done that. I mean, there are some really quite outlandish claims made about mantra. But even if you were to just count to ten, again and again and again and again, uh, which as far as I know, isn't said to have any esoteric qualities. Uh, what one does is, one, in a certain sense, uh, it calms the mind, it unifies the mind, it brings the mind together, uh, because and it, in a certain sense, settles the mind into this repetitive phrase, uh, whether it's, you know, om or one two three four five six seven eight nine ten, one two three four five six seven eight nine ten, or, or something like this. You, usually mantras have some sort of significance, they're not just, you know, catch to ten, of course. Yes. So, from what I understand that, and TM was very popular um, be, became quite popular. The Beatles uh, were interested in it and lots of quite famous people um, have become in, engaged and uh, in, in, in interested in it. Um, yeah, so you'll, you'll see if you look up TM. Now TM is also, um, like many religious uh, groups, um, has been criticized uh, for various uh, reasons, or organizationally and practically and so on. But generally, uh, in terms of the practice itself, that's how it works. You get a mantra, you repeat it, you repeat it 20 minutes a day, twice a day. So I think that's the basic idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of um, TM, I know that there's different states of consciousness uh, and that by being by, by reciting these mantras and doing this on a regular basis that you enter different states of consciousness um a little bit a little bit like like chakras that you i know uh chakra healing and, and the meditation are, are different i know that i can come together but they are different but that's how i i see different states of consciousness it's that you know there's, there's different uh ways of viewing what is your personal belief on the on tm meditation do you believe that um do you believe that 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 you can that there are different stages of consciousness because when i first learned about it i was i struggled in my in my logical thinking i struggled to think that there's different states of consciousness um and have you have you got there yourself what your personal experiences with with tm and etc well you know sometimes
1: the way a practice is described Mm And what actually happens, uh, well, let's put it this way, sometimes the effect of a practice can be described in different ways. So mm-hmm. some groups will uh, you know, describe the effects of their practice. Uh, they'll say, well, this is why it works, or this is what's happening. But of course, those are just conceptual overlays or descriptions of the experience itself, and they're not quite the same thing. Maps. So, Maps, yeah, mm-hmm. that's right, maps, yeah. So it certainly seems to be the case that practitioners of TM have varying uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people find it very, very wonderful and deeply transformative and nourishing. Other people, they, don't just, they just don't get on with it. They perhaps prefer a different sort of meditation, uh, for example. I think that's, that would be the case. Different mm-hmm. states of consciousness, I think it's certainly the case that, seems to be the case, that we go through different states of consciousness. Then we, if, if this happens to us in normal daily life, if you think about uh waking and sleeping one passes through different phases of of you know different states of mind states of body different hormonal profiles different brainwave uh, activities these sorts of things can be monitored medically actually or in in an mri or uh, something like this so we know that human beings um, do have different brain states different states of consciousness if you want and you know, even drink, you know, having a, a glass of wine or a beer can take you into a different state of consciousness.
0: Oh, yes, true.
1: <laughs> so uh, certainly if you sit there for 20 minutes a day and, you know, do your meditation, well, chances are you may eventually, sometimes, occasionally, um, or maybe frequently, enter states of, uh, of tranquility or states of absorption, maybe unification, uh, etc., it's, it's often the case, uh, but that's true. I think also if you if you lay, lay in a field and just look up at the sky for twenty minutes, uh, you know, with your arms outstretched and breathing in a relaxed way, you're likely to uh, alter a little bit your state of consciousness by doing that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'd say it's it's common it's common for people who practice meditation regularly to experience a change in their state of mind or their state of emotion or something like that during the practice now what's the cause of that much debate has been had about that you yeah. know there's some there's the bioregulation the nervous system regulation perhaps of you know of relaxing of no input coming in the breathing the regular breathing and so on and so forth you know something about a mantra you know it's sort of regulates your breathing in a different sort of a way because the mantra takes a certain amount of time to say and you have to inhale in between and so on so there's all these sorts of Possible reasons, yeah, and sure. Some people say it's to do with chakras and you know energy systems and uh, and things of that nature. That's not an uncommon interpretation in many traditions. But if you ask for my personal belief, which I think you did, mm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which of those is the correct interpretation. But it does seem anecdotally. That people who meditate tend to experience some not always you know some shifting conscious very subtle sometimes sometimes quite profound um, and sometimes permanent very often temporary you come out of meditation maybe feeling a bit more relaxed let's say you know. although sometimes people sit down to meditate and they feel much more anxious because suddenly there's nothing to do but feel their stress you know mm. and so uh, you know meditations are always uh
0: you know pleasant it's fascinating Oh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I've I've learned a lot, and I think the listeners will learn a lot too. Um, What would you say is the best way to start? I know it picked up on on me and how you know I I struggle to form the habit, and you have to practice the practice before you you know actually practice the practice itself. Um, What would you say is is the best meditation to start off with i know i know it's it's very subjective to say the best but in your experience what would you say has the best as has the most positive effects with what kind of meditation that is where would you begin yes just to be clear i i wasn't really saying
1: that one has to practice the practice of practice before one does the practice i meant that say you're struggling mm. you'd like to meditate and you struggle to do it regularly my advice was to really reduce the amount of you know lower your standards as to as the amount of time you're you're doing so that it's something easily manageable Mm -hmm. and and you might your objection may then be well gosh that doesn't seem like enough time to sort of get anything out of it but um, the point is that you weren't you're not getting any anything out of it by not meditating either yes so one minute is better than zero minutes and if one does one minute regularly uh, then perhaps eventually it in- increases to five or ten or or something like this. So that was the basic sort of framework of that previous yeah. answer. Uh, as for what's the most most effective? Well, I think a great idea if one is interested in meditation, you know, to try try some different sorts. You know, I do this every Wednesday. We have Guru Vaiki Meditation Club. It's a free thing on Zoom, and it's an hour long. And the first half an hour we do a technique, we do a guide meditation, and the second half an hour we have a Q and A discussion about it. Mm-hmm. And so each time you come you're exposed to different sorts of techniques. So we do different techniques from all different sorts of traditions. It's quite interesting. So something like that's good because you can sample different types. Uh, of course, there are also many apps now that you can go and try different guided meditations, etc. Uh, this is also very interesting. And you start to just see what's going on. You know, Maybe, maybe the, what I described earlier, just sitting and feeling the body is enough. Of course there are many books there are many teachers there are many apps there are many youtube videos and so on and so forth but i mean if you're interested in it uh, the first thing to do is just just to give it a try somehow or another uh, feeling the body it's really nice or just sitting and relaxing just doing nothing else but sitting enjoying that's a style of meditation actually just sitting there feeling i mean that's the beginning uh, but th- there are many other times and actually, <laughs> different people enjoy different types of meditation different times in their life that's one of the great things about having so many kinds if you don't like to feel the body and you prefer to you know visualize something or you prefer to do kind of breathing meditation or something like this uh, for example or some sort of a more mindfulness situation well you can do that the menu is vast and with the internet there's lots of uh, ways to try different things so yeah, I'd say try it. You know, try experiment, see what you like.
0: Interesting. Yeah, find out what's right for you. I'm just tasting and trying different things. Yeah, and you know,
1: even though there's many different sorts of meditations, they have they have generally a lot of things in common. Whenever you're meditating, you're generally building certain core skills. Usually, you're developing concentration to some degree because you're using your attention in a specific way. So that's building concentration. You're usually building sensory clarity. Uh, that is to say, you're usually uh, we become clearer about what it is you can feel, be able to feel more things, and and, and become clearer about that. And usually, develop equanimity, an ability to sort of feel things without push or pull, an ability to, in a certain sense, well, basically feel more without resisting and fighting and so on. That's one way of looking at it. So all the different techniques tend to, even though they have many differences, they have many things in common as well. So as long as you're, if you clearly understand the technique that you're using. Um, uh, then and you use it and guess what you're meditating <laughs> you know and it's it's yeah that's I'd say that I'd say that for now
0: so Steve we're coming to the end of this now and um, first thing I'd say is is what would you like to say to anyone listening what would be something that you'd want them to take away from this from this conversation one thing that you think would would help
1: Well, I think we've talked about a lot of things in this conversation, so mm-hmm. I expect by now, if if the person's still listening, that, that they've taken at least something something away from it. Uh, who can who can say? Mm-hmm. Uh, you mean some sort of a soundbite idea, I guess. Well, I suppose one thing you could say is follow your interests. You know, if you're interested <laughs> in meditation, that's great. Try out some stuff. Be curious. Explore. Try things. You know. It's a wonderful thing about being human being. We have senses, you know, seeing, hearing, feeling. We have thoughts, we have emotions, and and so on. And it's a remarkable thing to be a human being. A remarkable thing to have that capacity of uh, sensing and experiencing the world. So, uh, if that, if you're curious to explore that, uh, then I think it's a wonderful thing
0: and natural too. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Steve. How can the listeners at home get in touch with you? And what are you up to at the moment in terms of any projects you're working on? So, yeah, tell us about you.
1: Yeah, the best way, I th- suppose, is the website guruviking.com and also our Facebook and Instagram and YouTube under that same name, Guru Viking. Um, those are the best ways. Like I mentioned, we have every week. Right now, because of the pandemic, we are offering free meditation classes on a wednesday and every month once a month we do a three hour deep dive into a theme voted on by the people that come to those free guru viking meditation club classes yeah. uh, so we're doing we do that i have a podcast the guru viking podcast or any of you many interesting guests uh, that's also a terrific thing so that's the best place i think to find out what i'm doing
0: perfect thank you so much for today steve it's been amazing and uh, thoroughly enjoyable. I've learned so much, and I'm sure a lot of people have learned, learned a lot too. You're a thoroughly interesting and, and enthralling, captivating person. And, uh, I'm sure you hear that quite a lot. Maybe not in those words, but I'm sure you hear it quite a lot. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank
1: you, Ashley.